This is episode 38 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and this is part three of our conversation with Matt Ward. And today we finally get into the most important part, well, what I consider the most important part of the report and what Matt does also, the recommendations. So this is where you take all of the medical history, your patient's wishes, the physiological impairments, other observations, and pretty much everything you know about the world of dysphagia in order to make the most appropriate recommendations for your patient. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the episode. A few announcements today. Uh, Since this is part three of our report writing series, and this part is all about recommendations, if you do feel that you need more help with report writing or documentation, or if you're on the receiving end as an SLP getting some kind of subpar reports and you're really wanting to learn more about what really should be in these reports, Uh, We are having a webinar tomorrow night, which is April 25th. It's at 8 o'clock Eastern time, and it is a webinar that is free for all Medical SLP Solution members. Uh, So if you'd like to join, you can go to medslpsolution.com. And yes, it will be recorded. So if you aren't able to join the time and you miss this deadline, um, it will be in there. It will be recorded. It's a one-hour webinar. It is not for CEUs, but um, I just kind of go through the everything that should be included in both a VFSS and fees report, and also a show about four different samples of templates and reports that should be in there. So um, if that interests you, head to medslpsolution.com to get signed up to view that webinar. And I would like to thank this episode's sponsor. So if you've heard these episodes, you've heard um, our buddy Matt. And Matt is employed by this really cool company out of Nashville, Tennessee. It's SA Swallowing Services. SAS is what they go by. Um, but SAS is a mobile fees company providing clinical services for nursing care facilities, rehab hospitals, and physicians' practices in Tennessee and parts of Georgia, Alabama, and Kentucky. They're a provider of continuing education training courses for SLPs, both in Nashville, Tennessee, and on-site at healthcare facilities around the world. Their basic fees training includes proper and safe nasoendoscope use, appropriate equipment needs, infection control procedures, fees administration protocol, beginning analysis and interpretation skills, and hands-on learning and scoping practice with experienced instructors. Instructors. <laughs> Their advanced training is provided for experienced clinicians wishing to improve fees, observational skills, scoring, biomechanical analysis, and report writing. And I personally was a huge fan of that class. They didn't pay me to say that, but I'm going to say it anyways. <laughs> and a new course offering in July 2018 will be video stroboscopy, assessment of the larynx, providing training for SLPs in vocal anatomy and physiology, basic theory, vocal assessment protocols, and procedures and hands-on training in rigid and flexible stroboscopy. So visit the SAS website for more information at www.sasplc.com. And again, thank you, SAS, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so you know I, like, hate to get all mushy and gushy on this podcast, but I'm going to have to tonight. So, um, But first and foremost, I want to thank every single person that listens to this podcast, every single person that leaves a comment, every single person that leaves a review, or sends me a message, or 
there were so many of you that came up to me and talked to me at the New York State Convention this weekend. And I just, I really, sometimes, like I, not sometimes, all the time, just sit here and talk to myself into a microphone and don't want to say that it's lonely, but it's weird and awkward. So it's really nice to know that this stuff is resonating with you guys. And so I, I super really do appreciate the comments and you guys coming up to me and telling me this stuff. But, um, you know, I, I keep saying I appreciate you all way more than you know. And I continue to say that this podcast has grown into something way larger than myself and way larger than I could have ever imagined. And I want to use this platform for greater good. So you know, each week we average anywhere from 20 to 30,000 downloads. So I have a favor to ask all 30,000 of you if there's that many of you listening this week. But um, last week was a really tough week. If if you live here in the Buffalo area, I'm sure you've heard of the incredible human being named Jake Madonia. And Jake was a buddy of ours, both mine and my husband. He was a track athlete at UB at the same time that I played softball. My husband played football. And... In 2008, so 10 years ago, Jake was diagnosed with synovial sarcoma. It's a very rare soft tissue cancer. And Jake never, ever, ever used this as an excuse. He had surgery, chemo, radiation many, many times. Um, He came back to win his conference championship in, in 2008, but just kept beating this, kept beating this. And Jake was honestly one of the toughest people I've ever met in my entire life never allowing cancer to define him, never, ever quitting, never, ever feeling bad for himself, just one hell of a tough bastard, and I totally mean that, but, um, so Jake married a friend of mine named Lorena, and Lorena's actually a fellow SLP, and she's worked with adults in skilled nursing, and I covered for her maternity leave last year while she was home with their beautiful little miracle daughter named Nalina, and sad to report that Jake's battle with cancer sadly ended last week. Sorry, (laughs) but, um, you know, my heart is just bleeding for Lorena and Alina. Um, I can't imagine losing your best friend at the age of 30 and having a one-year-old at home. And I clearly (laughs) struggled with the words to say here, but I want to put this out there in hopes that we can all come together and support our fellow SLP as she navigates this new chapter in her life. So there's been a GoFundMe account that's been set up to help to support her and their one-year-old to help offset the costs of all of these medical bills over the last 10 years and to start a college fund for Nalina. So I hope you guys can all squeeze your loved ones a little tighter today and send some love to our fellow colleague, Lorena. I know she could really use it. You can you can access the GoFundMe account at bit.ly, B-I-T forward slash S-Y-P gives. I wanted to make a short link so you guys would memorize it. That's bit.ly, B-I-T forward slash S-Y-P gives. And Lorena, we are all praying for you. We hope that Nalina will get to hear some of the stories of her father's incredible legacy. And if only 1% of the population even lived with the same never quit, no excuses attitude as Jake, our world would be a much, much better place. So again, that's bit.ly, B-I-T forward slash S-Y-P gives, which links you to the GoFundMe page for our SLP sister, Lorena Madonia. And if if every one of our 30,000 listeners gave even the smallest amount, I'm sure we could help bring a little bit of sunshine to Lorena. So additionally, I love to challenge any businesses or corporations to please help out our sister as well. So didn't mean to get this emotional, but you know, I really hope everyone can help reach out to our sister here. So again, that's bit.ly forward slash SYP gives. And now we'll get on to this episode. So Again, we're back with our our buddy Matt. 
and grateful to SAS for sponsoring this episode. And I hope you all have a great week. So we're going to talk about recommendations now because it's the most important part to me. Um, it's the part where we're, if we're not excellent at our job, this is where it shows up. So you could get away with not necessarily having everything you need to have and doing modified variance, all studies and fees. Um, you can catch penetration and aspiration, but your recommendations are where it's going to show up. Um, and that to me is why I say, if you're not ready to do them, you're not ready to do them yet because the recommendations are what help our patients or what can hurt our patients. And I don't mean just medically hurt. There can be harm done, um, but it can also set our patients back. Um, I had a guy, I did a case study presentation one time um, on a guy that I'd seen in the hospital. He'd been treated for two years for dysphagia. He'd never had an instrumental, right? Okay. So he had gotten, I did all the math and I should have pulled it up before the podcast, but I didn't think I was going to talk about him, but I, I love this guy. Um, he'd had just a dense, dense, dense stroke two years prior. And he'd had a history of strokes before that. And he had had bedsides for years. He'd, he'd gotten three months of hospital and sniff therapy. He'd gotten three months of home health one year. The next year, he'd gotten three more months of hospital and sniff, three more months of home health. He did no, no instruments. They thickened his liquids. His wife had like a special recipe for thickening things. She talked about, it says this on the container, but I do this with the hot beverages and this with the cold beverages. And I do this and I don't let him have anything that's not thick. And they knew they spoke speech, so to speak. Um, they they knew all of the lingo, oh, aspiration and penetration. And they, they knew it all. Uh, I mean, for two years, this guy had, had been treated. Um, and we ended up getting a fees consult on the guy and the guy had a pristine swallow. And he may not have for that entire two years, he may have had dysphagia, but we don't know. I think that happens. Like I, I always say like nothing surprises me any, anymore because everything is surprising. But like, I think to those of us that do instrumentals all the time, that happens way more often than people would believe. Yeah. Like I, I was talking to a, um, a woman, she just is going back into speech pathology as like a second career. I think she's in her late forties, but, um, she kind of reached out to me. We've become good buddies, but same thing. She was seeing this guy in home health and she's like, he was in the hospital. They made him MPO. He had like a hundred days in the sniff. He stayed MPO. They did like trials of applesauce and that like just this obscure treatment plan and never had an instrumental. And finally in home health, you know, he's telling her, like, I've, I've been NPO for so long, and the doctor says I'm going to die any day now because I just eat sandwiches at home because I want to. You know, so she's like, I got him, you know, I got him an MBS, and it came back perfect. And she's like, now, like, I spend my entire sessions doing, like, reverse psychology because the wife is a nervous wreck because right. everyone's been telling her for four months that if he eats this, he's going to die. If he eats this, he's going to die. And she's like, it's been so hard to break that mold with the wife because that's what she's been told by so many people. So, yeah. So we can be our own worst enemy. Yeah, totally. Um, so uh, that happened to that guy. And, and that's uh, recommendations not being in sync with what's actually happening. And when we ask for instrumentals to be done and we push for it, that's really what we're pushing for is an accurate representation of what's happening because we can't help someone if we don't know. 
And that, that was the first, when she had, had come to me with this case, that was the first thing I said was, you know, did he have a modified in the hospital when he first went in? And, you know, she went back and asked the wife and asked the husband and they, you know, never had anything. She's like, well, how did they come up with these determinations? Well, just at the bedside, they gave him something and determined he was aspirating and, you know, made him MPO. Like, never had an instrumental the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Um so that, just like we were saying before we both got off on telling stories there, is your recommendations go with your patients. So they, and they've got to match your diagnosis. I, I see this sometimes too um, in reports. So you'll see uh, it says someone has mild oral pharyngeal dysphagia, let's say. And then the recommendation will be puree and honey thick. That doesn't make sense to me. Puree maybe because of, of dentition, maybe. Um, but the mild and honey thick, I'm not sure why that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, so your recommendations really need to match your whole report should flow from beginning to end and each part should agree and support the other parts. So if you're going to say someone has something mild and then you're going to recommend a diet that is a pretty significant change from normal, um, you might want to think there's, there's something that doesn't match there. Um, it's interesting to me how many times I read things like that. And I I think partially that's because we allow our feelings to be what makes someone mild, moderate, or severe. Um, like we feel okay with this person, like, oh, I'm okay if they eat a honey thick or eat a puree diet with honey thick liquids, that makes me feel safe. So I can say it's mild. Um, or this person really scares me, even though they're not aspirating, they're silently penetrating um, a lot. And so that person scares me. So they have severe dysphagia. Um, that's, that's why I like using something like the dysphagia outcome severity scale. It's objective. And so then when you say something is severe, you're not actually just, it's not a fear statement. It's not an anxiety statement. It's a statement of fact. And then when you do things like that, it tends to help your recommendations match that. Um, so your recommendations also need to include any abnormalities you see during your exam. Uh, for fees, we see a lot of soft tissue stuff. I do. Sometimes you see polyps or nodules. Um, all of that needs to be referred because we can't diagnose any of that. Um, we get used to seeing it. That's good. But th- that's another reason um, you want to have a good mentor. There are absolutely things that we can miss. Um, when you are looking at someone swallowing, you are not just looking at swallowing. There is a whole area of anatomy that is lit up either by radiation or with a light and a camera uh, that allows you to see into that person's body. And you may be the only person who's looked there. Um, And when we look, sometimes we find funny looking things. Sometimes they're absolutely benign. Um, Sometimes they are not benign. uh, And we're not the ones who can make that call. So if you're doing these and you're not used to what you should see and what you shouldn't see, that's another way which we're letting our patients down. So uh, we refer a lot to GI. We refer a lot to ENT. Uh, My modified barium swallow studies, I remember referring several uh, to neurology. Um, Swallowing and difficulty uh, speaking were sometimes the first signs of a neurological condition that they didn't have yet diagnosed. Um, so all of those things are very important uh, to have in your recommendations. Um, the other thing about recommendations is there is no such thing as, and I'll use the air quotes since you used them before, being conservative. 
Um, it's not about what we're comfortable with. Uh, recommendations need to flow in a logical order from the patterns of behavior that we observed through our assessment and on to the recommendations for treating SLPs and other members of the medical team. That is so, so, so important. Um, when I was talking earlier and I mentioned aspiration was like the big bad wolf, the word in me still produces this, the word aspiration still produces this sort of Pavlovian response. It's like a fear response. We were taught to fear it, and I think we all do on some level. Um, and sometimes aspiration is, is a sign of something that is really, really dire, and others it's not. Um, and, and we need to remember that. So uh, it's something that I try and remember every day. Um, I know I'm speaking from experience there, not from sort of a place where I understand and no one else does. It, it's something that I've struggled with. Um, but when you look at objective data about your patient, it becomes more clear what you need to do. And when you remove emotion from it, um, it's really quite helpful. Okay. Um, yeah, now we're talking some more fun stuff. Um, so why the usual care in dysphagia isn't good enough. Um, um, we know that with modified diets, there's an increased risk of malnutrition and dehydration. Again, those things in our patients are absolutely every bit as deadly as pneumonia. We know that there is decreased pleasure when eating and drinking. Quality of life matters. We know that there, like with thickened liquids, you have slowed gastric emptying and reduced effectiveness of time-release medications. Let's think about our patients who, um, I'm not sure, maybe have Parkinson's disease um, and have medication that needs to uh, be released at certain times and at certain levels in the gut. And what we know is thickened liquids actually can change uh, the level where that medication is released and the time in which it releases. Diets are, uh, I think, uh, a non-labor intensive way to attempt to keep someone from aspirating, but I don't know that altered diets do a great deal in helping our patients. Um, and there is some evidence that some of the things that we do with diets really don't help our patients and, and do cause Harm may be too strong a word in some of the in some instances, but really are not good for our patients. Um, like, let's talk about. We'll go on and jump into the tube feedings because uh, that's I don't know. Maybe this is a hot take. Uh, they say that in the radio business, it's a hot take. Um, uh, tube feedings and strict P NPO. I don't think we ought to be doing that. Um, they don't prevent aspiration or aspiration pneumonia. Uh, tube feedings with strict NPO, in my estimation, reflect a fundamental misunderstanding of how the oral pharyngeal mechanism works, how our immune response works, and the impact of swallowing on GERD. Um, in fact, uh, the two, that is tube feeding and NPO, represent uh, a larger danger to most of our patients than aspiration alone. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about why. Um, we know that reflux, uh, one of the things that helps clear reflux is continued pharyngeal swallow. And what we do when we take our patients and say they need to be NPO with a peg tube and they need to be strict NPO, uh, we stop that pharyngeal swallowing. Not completely, they're still swallowing saliva, but they are producing less saliva. And so that's decreased pharyngeal swallowing that he has increased reflux. Um, and that increased reflux also puts them at risk for 
uh, aspiration of that gastric contents, and those gastric contents are much worse to aspirate than food and liquid. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about a study now. Uh, has looked at uh, several uh, patients and several hundred patients in a nursing home. Uh, the study is from 1996, so another 20-year-old study, um, but it's a good one. They looked at 152 patients in a skilled nursing facility. Uh, they had uh, initial modified barium swallow studies on every patient. Uh, 81 of those patients were observed to aspirate. 19 were observed to have esophageal dysphagia, and 52 had no form of dysphagia on their initial assessment. Um, they followed these patients for 36 months, so three years. Um, that's a cumulative total of 4,280 months if you add up all the months together, which matters later because that's how they determine the, the incidence of pneumonia in the study. Um, so they, deter they made a determination that a patient was either uh, had no aspiration, was a quote-unquote minor aspirator, uh, uh, or a major aspirator in this study. Um, anyone who was considered to be a major aspirator was recommended alternative means of nutrition, hydration, medication administration. So think NG tube, PEG tube, Dobhoff, G tube, J tube, they were recommended something. Um, so they kept following these patients for three years. Uh, they did follow up bedside uh, swallow evaluations. If there were any changes in the patient, if they felt like they needed to, they did, uh, more modified barium swallow studies on patients that maybe weren't showing signs initially, but now we're showing signs or patients who were showing signs and were getting worse. Um, they also did serial chest x-rays on patients to determine if they had pneumonia. Um, and so this went on for three years. The results of this study, and I just, I love these results. I say love a lot about either inanimate objects or studies, which I think is funny. It's okay, man. Um, it's okay. But I, I love this study. Um, so, out of the, the whole three-year period, they diagnosed pneumonia 56 times, and they don't make uh, any distinction of whether or, not, whether or not it's aspiration. This is just pneumonia. So in this skilled nursing facility, and they followed these patients for three years, 56 pneumonias. Um, that's an overall frequency of 1.3%. Not a lot. Um, the interesting thing was, if you looked at people who were not aspirating at all, people who were minor aspirators and major aspirators who chose to keep eating. There was no statistical difference in pneumonia in those three groups of people. So these are people who were the major aspirators are people we would recommend NPO and some sort of feeding tube. They're still eating. They have the same rates roughly uh, as the patients who were not aspirating. If you look at artificial feeding, um, it was associated with the highest frequency of pneumonia in the study. It was not successful at uh, attempting to prevent pneumonia. And if you look at Langmore's study from 98, uh, dependent for feeding and feeding tube are both good predictors of aspiration pneumonia. So this study kind of jives with, with that study as well. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of clinicians, and the reason we're still talking about this, default to is we see a lot of aspiration. We must stop this person from eating and drinking. They need a feeding tube because that will make it safer. It doesn't. And the data has been pretty clear on that for decades now. What we think we're doing to help our patients doesn't actually help our patients. So the conclusion of this study is patients who aspirate food and liquid remain at risk for aspiration of gastric contents. We talked about that earlier. There's a Noted correlation of uh, 
increased rates of reflux with NG, PEG tubes, J tubes, all of this. Um, and aspirating gastric contents, like we talked about before, is much, much worse than aspirating food and liquid. It really does some significant damage to your lungs. Um, what they, the conclusion that they ultimately came to was that alternative feeding options do not eliminate aspiration uh, of colonized secretions uh, that are thought to be the cause of most pneumonias in the elderly. Um, I really like that study because it kind of hits home things that we know but don't put into practice very well. Um, we've known for years that PEG tubes, J tubes, G tubes, alternative means of nutrients don't stop us from aspirating. Um, we still are, our patients are still aspirating, um, their own secretions and their own secretions, quite frankly, are the things that carry, uh, those pathogens down to the lungs. Uh, they're much worse to aspirate than, than something like water. Um, so that's one reason I like that, uh, that study. It, it, it's just to me, we think we're doing something well, uh, telling someone, oh, we can stop you from aspirating. Well, we can't. Um, the only way to stop someone from aspirating is to stop them from swallowing their own secretions. And that is not possible without a surgical procedure to my knowledge. And that wouldn't be a very good surgical procedure. Um, so uh, it's just, for me, aspiration was always this big, terrible thing uh, that needed to be stopped at all costs. And number one, we can't stop it. Um, and number two, the rates of pneumonia, which is what we're really concerned about when we're looking at aspiration, are much, much lower. And it all goes back to that three pillars of aspiration that we were, or aspiration pneumonia that we were talking about earlier. You have to have a lot of failures and a lot of systems that are very robust for someone to actually get pneumonia from aspiration. That doesn't mean people don't get it. I still think it's very important, the work that we do. Um, but it is a lot harder, I think, than some of us believe to get uh, pneumonia from aspiration. Yeah, I agree with that. I also, I kind of do want to go back a little bit. You know, we do sometimes see a major difference with someone on PRA versus a regular diet. So I do, you know, we do still very much have a role in that. But I think, I mean, this is the take home point that I'm getting from what you're saying, Matt. Maybe I'm all wrong, but <laughs> what in my perfect little, in my perfect little world, what this means to me is we need to be complete BFFs with our dietitians. And before we even just, you know, we do have the power and the authority to, or some of us go to the chart and just say, okay, puree diet now. But I don't know that that should be the first step. Perhaps the first step should be go talk to your dietitian and say, from a swallowing standpoint, this may be the best diet. I don't know what's going on with him nutrition-wise. You're that expert. What do you think? You know, I think we need to have these kind of dialogues before we're just making these blanket recommendations. Yeah, and for me, it, there are un, many unintended consequences from flippantly making diet recommendations. There are certainly patients uh, who I believe would benefit from an altered diet. I don't make those recommendations as much anymore, just number one, because I wanna to talk to the patient and see what they want. So much of what we do is behind closed doors. We do the study, we get the results. We go talk to the doctor maybe, um, and she or he may tell us, oh yeah, I, I'm in agreement, let's, let's pursue that. And then we go tell the patient what diet they now get. For me, that's not the order it should be in. Our patients are active participants, they should 
you know, just like your guy you were talking about earlier that you saw today, um, he needs to have a say. And if he's absolutely never going to drink thickened liquids, well, then we don't need to recommend them because it's not going to do anyone any good. Um, so there, there's that component. And the other component to me, is there's a, there's a lot of making diet recommendations uh, that we just simply don't know the impacts on. There are a lot of impacts like on medication. There's a lot of impacts on the amount of protein and the amount of calories that patients get when we modify their diets. And we're really not, not built for that. So for me, diets are a way to get nutrition and hydration. And since we don't know as much about that, I tend not to make those the um, first part of my recommendations. It's going to be something I'm going to recommend, but what I'm really looking at then is efficiency. How much volume can this person get? And is it beneficial for them to try this diet? If they can meet their daily needs for nutrition and hydration, um, then, and they can do it better with a certain type of diet and they're willing to do that, then absolutely. I think now we've talked with the patient, we've talked with maybe our dietitian or the rest of the medical team. And we think this is going to work for this patient. Then I think, yeah, our diet recommendations, it's worthwhile making them. Um, but I that's think that's the so, point I wanted you to make. Yes. Yeah, so, so many, so many of us, uh, and I will include myself when I was a young clinician thought that, Oh, this diet is safer. And that's kind of what I want to combat is there are a lot of unintended consequences from altering diets. And some of those consequences are absolutely much worse than aspiration. So that's where I come down on it. Good, good, good. I agree. Oh, good. Uh, since we both agree, I think we fixed everything. I think so. We <laughs> solved the world. <laughs> All right. So uh, I, I was another, I guess, nerd alert. Uh, was taught to write a five paragraph essay. I don't know if you ever taught that. Like that was a way I was taught by my English teachers in high school. And I remember my English teacher telling me, you tell people what you're going to tell them. That's the introduction. Then you tell them that's the body. And then you tell them what you told them. That's yes. the conclusion. <laughs> yes. So we've talked for a while. And that's quite frankly, how every podcast goes. I tell people what we're going to talk about. We talk about it. And then I tell you what we talked about at the end. Yes. Well, yeah. And we quite frankly <laughs> talked about a lot of really heady stuff. I mean, uh, doing research for this and, and, and just doing research on, on this topic in general, there's a lot of stuff that's not easy to grasp. And, you know, you want to bounce ideas off, off people. And so I understand right now if someone's head is spinning, because quite frankly, my head spins. I mean, I read a new article and it, it's a new take on what I've been doing. And all of a sudden, I'm rethinking everything I've ever done. Um, and so just kind of to to start wrapping things up and, and talk about some of the things that we have talked about in a more succinct manner. What I want to get across to, to people is you want to screen every patient who is at risk for dysphagia, because I do believe what we do is important. I do believe um, signs and symptoms uh, of aspiration are, are noteworthy and important. I, I certainly don't want anyone to think that uh, I don't like clinical swallowing evaluations or that I don't do them. I do them. I think they have their place and signs and symptoms of aspiration are also the, are often the first chance we get that, Oh, there might be something going on here. Um, for me, any non-instrumental assessment of pharyngeal dysphagia is a screen. Um, I know that's not always popular, but it, it's a screen. You can call it case finding if you want to. And, and James Coyle makes a good point about that, but to, and uh, actually several different articles. Um, but for me, 
regardless of what we call it, I can't look inside your throat without an instrumental exam. And so that's why I refer to it as a screen. It's not meant as pejorative. It means when I put my fingers on your throat and I feel it, I don't know what I'm feeling. <laughs> I've done it for years, um, but I, I can't tell you what's going on inside without it. Um, so since uh, so many of the clinical swallowing evals hold subjective measures, it, it can be kind of confusing. And since it, we can't determine if penetration or aspiration is occurring, um, then we need to be doing instrumentals. Um, and for me, we're not doing instrumentals. This is the, the big point and the reason I continue to talk about this. The reason we do them is not to determine whether or not someone's aspirating. The reason we do them is to develop an effective treatment regimen for this patient. We don't know what's going on. We can't help someone fix it. Um, so you want to screen them um, if they're at risk. And then if, if they are showing signs, if they quote unquote fail your screen or whatever criteria that you use, then you've got to get them an instrumental because we want, want to help patients get better. Um, then the second point, if you're doing a non-instrumental assessment, this is a big takeaway for me. Um, both Langmore in 98 and Stephen Leader in 2015 um, published the exact same result, which was interesting to me. They looked at completely different things. 71% of their patients who failed a screen were able to tolerate an oral diet. Um, with swallow strategies or bolus manipulation, 71%. I don't know about you, but that's a huge number for me. Um, it is in as far as what it means for my patients. I have seen lately, and this may be anecdotal, I, I certainly, this is not a, a double-blind research study, but um, for me, I have seen an increase in the number of peg tubes after a bedside. And that is really disturbing to me. I'm dealing with a family now that's just livid. I've I've done the, a fees on a, this guy a few times and just had a bedside. The woman went in and said he's got to be aspirating and gave him a peg. Right. And the, the family's very highly educated and they didn't want it at all. And it all just happened like while they were out one day. Yeah. That's why that number matters to me. 71% of our patients can eat and drink safely if you want to use the word safety. And can eat and drink safely efficiently, whatever the word you want to use, they can do it. Um, so if you're looking at using a non-instrumental assessment, um, uh, it's really hard for me to, to believe that it is um, uh, ethical to, to, to make a call on a feeding tube when we know what we have talked about earlier in this podcast, that feeding tubes aren't always the best option for our patients. Um, and in fact, a lot of cases, they aren't the best option for our patients. That 71 of our patients, even then, uh, could have some sort of diet. Uh, if we just take a, if we just took a look, um, and those were both two really good studies, one in from 1998, one from 2015. Um, so if you're looking at our, our assessment, I always like to think of our assessment as it is a, an assessment code. It's an eval code. That's what it gets billed as, but it's an assessment of intervention. The second we start adding anything to our, our, our assessment, it becomes treatment. Um, if you're watching something head towards the vogel folds and you say, hey, go on and cough, you have just taken that out of the natural response from that patient's body and given them a cue. That's determining if a treatment or if an intervention is effective. Um, if you don't test it, you can't talk about it. We talked about that before. Um, it, just because you've got a textbook case for someone who needs a chin tuck doesn't mean it's going to be beneficial for that person. You need to look. Um, 
interventions can always be can always do one of three things they can help your patient they can harm your patient or they can be completely ineffective and we don't know without looking um just a couple of final words about this uh i'm gonna skip that one <laughs> i'm going to another slide um i can't say it better than joe murray did uh the quality of our response to a consultation may be the single act that carries a positive impression and ensures that our services are sought in the future. We have a lot of clinicians who, who are saying we don't get the respect we need. Um, that is not always your fault. Certainly uh, that happens in settings where clinicians are doing awesome jobs. Um, but what I have found is uh, you get less disrespect the better you are at your job. And writing a report is one way that you prove to people that you're good at your job. It's one way that you advocate for your patient, like we talked about before. Um, it's one way uh, that you convey uh, the little piece that we know about our patient, the little spot that only we're looking at, to doctors, nurses, and family members and patients. It's absolutely imperative we be excellent at it. So, I don't know, that's my two cents about reports. Yeah, I, I love that quote, Matt. That's great. I think, for me, I... I kind of had to take a step back and realize what was happening. But I have doctors, I have a few different doctors that will just text me now. And at first I didn't, you know, think much of it. But then when I was talking to one of my colleagues, she's like, oh my gosh, that doctor texts you? Like that doctor doesn't talk to anyone. And I was like, oh, and she's like, oh my God, like it, two of them particularly. And she's like, they must just like really respect your work. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I was like, well, I guess I am doing something right if the doctor texts me directly for the results, you know, um, not not trying to toot my own horn at all, but just saying that th these are the kind of relationships that we have to make, you know. Absolutely. And it, this I just want to say again, I know I talked a lot at the beginning <clears throat> about there may be reasons that it's not time for you to be doing swallow studies yet. If you're not on top of your anatomy and physiology, if you're not on top of the neurology if you don't have the medical piece under your belt yet. Just because it's in our scope of practice doesn't mean that we're competent at it yet. But it doesn't mean that you can't do them. I mean, I didn't come out of grad school just ready to do all of this stuff. I, it took a lot of work and a, a lot of self-education, a lot of self-study, but then also finding mentors and finding more than one. Um, and it tends to be, I, I find the people who are really good at this, whether or not they do mobile fees or whether or not they do modifieds, some of my favorite clinicians are the clinicians who just never stop educating themselves about it. Never. I had a um, clinician who uh, we go see routinely. Uh, she's in her 80s. Um, and every time we go, she wants to see the study. She wants to talk about it. She did modifieds. I think she told me the last time she did one was 25 years ago. But she's never stopped learning. She's never stopped wanting to educate herself. When I, you know, if I tell her, oh, I read this article about this, she wants the article. You don't have to be doing these to be a great clinician. And that, that just kind of goes to show it for me. It just, just because you've done it a certain way doesn't mean you've always had to do it. And just because you're not at a stage yet where it may be the most appropriate for you to start doing them doesn't mean you won't be. It just takes some time and a little bit of effort. You don't have to be a genius to do this. I think I've proven that. Yes. <laughs> um, you just have to want to be good at it. And, and if you want to be good at it, typically you can. That's kind of the syrupy spin I try to put on, you know, the emails when all the students are emailing me about this, you know, I'm kind of just like, I hope I'm not discouraging you from 
seeking this out, but just know that you need a lot more experience, you know, before you, you go into this. So, yeah. 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 All right, Matt. That was great. I thought it was good. I told you it would go long. (laughs) That's all right. That's great. This was really good. We covered a lot of good stuff tonight. We did. And uh, we actually talked about writing reports at the end. We did. It's really funny to me that I I sent you the topic and I, and it's exactly what I thought. Like I I knew when we were, when, I don't know, on the boards and when we talked to people and everyone's like, we're pushing for instrumentals, but then you get those clinicians on the boards who are saying, I sent my patient for an instrumental or I got a mobile fees contract and it's the shittiest damn report I've ever got. And you're going, oh. I know. We haven't really talked about that. And no one really talks about that. Like, I got trained on the job. That's how I got trained. Right. Now, that's what inspired me to start my mobile fees business was I just kept getting crappy report after crappy report. And I'm like, I know there's got to be a better way to do this, you know? So I'm glad we talked about it because... Yeah, I mean, like I said, anybody can click a drop-down menu. We can train a monkey to, you know, find deficits and click a drop-down menu. But all the stuff we talked about takes a lot more. As John Rosenbeck says, we have a frontal lobe for a reason. So, yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, thanks for making us all use our frontal lobes tonight, Matt. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again, my friend. No problem. It was a pleasure. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.